Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to a new series that we've just begun at Global Summetry entitled Climate Change Policy in the Aftermath of the Paris Accord. I did want to mention that if you look for Episode 5, an interview with Sir David King on COP21 and Mission Innovation, is in fact a precursor to this uh, current series. Today, I want to welcome Thomas Hale from the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University. Tom is a colleague of mine, going back to his work on his PhD at Princeton. He is now an associate professor of public policy at the Blavatnik School, very much involved in examining the questions of managing transnational problems and has been very involved in um, work on Paris and the aftermath of the Paris Accord. So let's join in in a conversation I'm having with Tom on the various questions of the Paris Accord. So, Tom, I wanted to kind of begin the discussion by understanding something that you wrote recently. You described it as a shift in climate change policy from a regulatory to a catalytic model of regime governance. Maybe you can describe that to our audience here. Happily. So in 1992, the countries of the world promised to prevent dangerous changes in the Earth's climate. And for 20 years after that, they tried to negotiate a treaty that would give life to that promise. And of course, they, they didn't get there for, for many years. And why? Well, because the, re the kind of treaty they were trying to negotiate wasn't really compatible with the economic and political preferences of the dominant countries at the time. So the treaty they were trying to negotiate was what you might call a regulatory treaty. It was trying to create a global deal that would negotiate how much each country would be able to emit. Now, that proved impossible because countries like the United States, like China, like others, didn't want to accept international limits on what they could do with their economies. So Paris comes along with this fundamentally different idea. Instead of trying to negotiate a global deal that will say how much each individual country can emit, they ask each individual country to make a contribution, a pledge of some kind, for their own emissions, a nationally determined contribution. And the role of institutions here is completely different. So instead of under a Kyoto Protocol style framework where the role of institutions is to make people's uh, targets credible to each other, the role of, of institutions in a Paris type agreement is instead to get action going in the first place. So the problem you're trying to solve with the Kyoto Protocol style treaty is to prevent free riding, whereas the problem you're trying to solve with a Paris style treaty is to get policies going and commitments uh, being made in the first place. And so it has a fundamentally different logic. All right. If that's true, Tom, and we're, we're looking at this change in policy from the bottom up to the top down, how did this impact on states in particular with respect to the shift from Kyoto to Paris? 
Well, I think states were able to do things they wouldn't be have been able to do under a Kyoto style or Kyoto 2.0 style agreement. Um, for example, countries like China were able to make an international, internationally recognized pledge, in China's case, to peak their emissions in advance of 2030, that wouldn't have been doable under a Kyoto Protocol style agreement, where they would have to have, have set a kind of national emissions target. Um, so that kind of flexibility really opens up possibilities for action to, to start taking place in a way that a Kyoto Protocol style treaty just doesn't, isn't geared to do. Um, and you know that's just one example. There are 190 plus different nationally determined contributions, or NDCs as they're called, mm -hmm. each one reflecting a different set of preferences. Um, and so that's that ability to start where countries are and not where they need to be is, I think, a, a useful uh, innovation we've seen with the Paris Agreement. That earlier model, the so-called top-down, why had the countries as they negotiated over a very lengthy period of time, really from uh, 97, 1997 on, why did they approach it in that way? What was it that was kind of their, their template in terms of uh, devising a universal climate change policy? You know, it's really funny because actually the first treaty countries agreed on climate change, the 1992 Framework Convention on, on Climate Change, had a kind of pledge and review system in place in Article 14. Um, it asked countries to state what they were going to do on climate change, then report that back to the COP. It was very you know, rudimentary, but that was the sort of basic template. But it was quickly decided that that kind of model wasn't going to galvanize the kind of action needed as quickly as was needed. And so they looked to other kinds of treaties that they've um, been working on and, and around that time period, uh, the most salient being the Montreal Protocol, the International Agreement to Limit Ozone. And that agreement, like many other environmental agreements, has a kind of standard, uh, what you might call convention and protocol template, where you agree a kind of general convention, and then you negotiate over time a series of protocols that gradually ratchet up the common core commitments in that agreement. And that worked for air pollution, for ozone, uh, for endangered species, so other kinds of environmental treaties. And so when climate change came onto the political agenda, everyone said, oh, great, we've done this before. We know how to solve this problem. Uh, we have the model. Let's do it. And unfortunately, climate change proved to be a different kind of issue and so required a different kind of approach in the end. And I take it as well uh, in terms of the bottom-up approach that one of the features or one of the imperatives here was really with respect to the United States and the United States negotiating uh, position. Am I right on that? Absolutely. So the United States um, made very clear it was impossible for it to agree a kind of treaty that would impose internationally determined uh, emissions reductions onto mm -hmm. the country. That was a, a non-starter in Congress, and so it was a hard constraint on the design of the Paris Agreement. Now, even though the United States was the, clearly the kind of most important country for that, it's also important to note there were a number of other countries that also wouldn't have taken on such obligations, um, even if they were more quiet about it. And you can see the you know, evidence of this just in, in the late days of the Kyoto Protocol. So for example, when it became clear that Canada was going to struggle to meet its target, it just left the protocol. <laughs> so the kind of um, you know way these treaties were able to compel countries to abide by things they didn't want to do was very limited. Mm -hmm. In effect, what we've got here then is a 
very different kind of treaty than we had seen previously. And one of the other features I want you to kind of examine here is who was involved in this climate change agreement. Obviously, we see states and intergovernmental actors, but it also appears to be that there are a variety of other actors involved here. Uh, maybe you can describe to us some of the additional players that have become part of this effort to limit carbon emission. Absolutely. So while countries have been negotiating with each other over the past two decades or so, um, at the same time, many other actors have been getting involved in the climate change game. And that includes cities, states and provinces and regions, other subnational governments, the private sector, investors, civil society, religious groups, foundations, a whole range of actors have been in some ways taking matters into their own hands and engaging in climate governance just on their own or in, or in networks that reach across borders, transnational networks. Um, and those have began as early as the intergovernmental regime itself in the early 1990s, but then really increased over time, especially in the early 2000s and around the entry into force of the Kyoto Protocol and surged again just before the, the Copenhagen Accord. After the kind of, if you want, disaster in Copenhagen, some people said, hmm, maybe these things are going to be an alternative to the intergovernmental system. Maybe these other kinds of venues for climate governance are going to have to supplant the intergovernmental regime. Um, but what we've instead seen, actually, is a growing complementarity and coalition between, if you want, the outside forces or previously outside forces and the core kind of intergovernmental regime itself. And this began really in earnest in 2014 when the UN Secretary General hosted a big summit in New York where he invited not just heads of state, but also CEOs and mayors and other sub and non-state leaders to declare what they were going to do on climate change. Um, and that continued through the Lima COP in that year um, and was sort of institutionalized in a big new way in COP21 in Paris in 2015, where you had the French government declare the so-called action agenda, that is all the action of sub and non-state actors, as a fourth pillar of the conference itself alongside the intergovernmental agreement, uh, the financing package, um, and the national pledges. So it really is a massive shift in how we approach this issue and a big change, I would say, in, in global governance architectures more broadly. Uh, and how, in effect, Tom, have we seen in terms of the Paris Accord, the UNFCCC and the Secretariat, how have they institutionalized uh, the participation of uh, sub-state actors, so provinces and states and localities that you mentioned, and private sector actors or non-state actors who obviously wanted to be part of this. What's the institutional framework for that? So it's become much more institutionalized over these past years and really much more quickly than I think even the actors themselves um, would have thought. Um, so it began with a really an effort just to recognize and um, sort of note the enthusiasm coming from cities and businesses and others. Um, and we saw that, for example, with the creation of the Nazca portal, which is an online uh, web portal that the UN runs that tracks and registers different uh, sub and non-state actors. But then we saw it become more uh, sort of operational with the increase in efforts to orchestrate uh, sub and non-state actor initiatives by governments, by the UNFCCC, by the Secretary General. And this really took a big change at the Paris conference itself, where the parties to the convention, that is the states, 
appointed two high-level champions to be the sort of official link between the intergovernmental process and this groundswell of action from cities and businesses and others. And so those champions are meant to go out and start new initiatives and to scale them up and seed them and to really try to maximize the potential that that kind of action has for the Paris Agreement's goals. And now looking forward, where we're trying to shift from, if you want, a negotiation phase to an implementation phase, the role of sub-analysis action has just grown tremendously. So it's both a way for countries um, to achieve their national targets quickly, more cheaply, with greater technological transfers, et cetera, than they would have otherwise, and also a kind of pressure mechanism that gives them uh, scale and scope to raise their ambition more quickly than they otherwise would have been. So uh, we've seen the UFCCC really embrace this tool, embrace these actors, as a way to implement the Paris Agreement and achieve the goals that countries set out for themselves in the Paris Agreement. You mentioned two champions. Who did they identify? Who did the secretariat identify? So each host of the COP, each presidency, as they're called, gets to pick a champion who then serves a two-year term. The first one, the French uh, presidency, chose Laurence Trubiana, who is the climate ambassador for France, um, to serve a two-year term. Um, and the second host, Morocco, chose their uh, environment minister, Ms. Hakim Al-Haiti, who um, is just coming to the end of her term this year. And now the Fijian champions have chosen their minister for agriculture, Inia Seriatu, as their champion. And so we've seen a successive a string of, of champions coming forward. Um, and you know now we're seeing actually a new development there where the champions are going to surround themselves with something called a climate leadership network, which will be a broader range of ambassadors, if you will, for sub and non-state climate action, mayors, CEOs, et cetera, who will build up that kind of orchestration, galvanizing function that the champions are meant to fulfill. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the Paris Accord then, Tom, we see that, as you've described, it's a bottom-up approach. It's involving factors beyond the state and intergovernmental. And it's built upon the promotion of nationally determined contributions of both state and non-state actors. What was the goal that the Paris Accord identified? And in the face of the, all the NDCs, is that goal realistic? So the Paris Agreement is distinguished not just by this change in the logic of international cooperation, but by a very ambitious goal countries set up for themselves. They said they're going to... Uh, basically achieve net zero emissions by the second half of this century. Now, net zero emissions means that no more greenhouse gases are going into the atmosphere that are naturally coming out through trees or other kinds of sinks. And that, that kind of net zero concept is essentially what science tells us we have to get to in order to maintain a two degree temperature limit, and certainly what we'll need to do um, as soon as possible if you want to get to a 1.5 degree temperature limit. Um, so I think that idea is, is truly a radical one because it suggests we need to totally transition our economy away from the source of economic, the main source of economic growth over the past, you know, 150 years or so, and we have to do it in three or four decades. So that's some impressive ambition. I take it then the ultimate goal at this point identified by Paris is 1.5 degrees Celsius. Is that achievable within the frame of the current NDCs that we have from states and then uh, augmented by the non-state actors as well. So we are probably on a trajectory before Paris to get to about a four or five degree temperature change in the century. 
the best estimates for Paris suggest that it's probably take that the NDCs take us down to somewhere close to three, so maybe 3.2 or so. Um, the sub and non-state actor initiatives can push us below that further, although exactly how far below is yet a bit undetermined. We need to develop some better data and tracking around this, and work is going on at the moment to figure out exactly how much more we get um, with the sub and non-state action. But even in the most optimistic scenarios, we're probably, you know, realistically on a sort of two point, two point something trajectory, probably close to three. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot more than two, and certainly a lot more than 1.5. But also, you know, it has to be said a lot less than four or five degrees of temperature change, which would be truly catastrophic. So there's a real need to increase ambition. And the point of the Paris Agreement, of course, was not to get us onto that pathway immediately, but to get us on into a process through which we'll eventually get ourselves onto that pathway. Now, the year for that is coming up soon because uh, the science is increasingly clear that we need to get onto a lower pathway ASAP if we want to have any hope of maintaining especially the 1.5 degree goal. So this next round of NDCs, which are due in 2020, three years from now, are going to be critical. And if they don't close the emissions gap, we're really going to be in a dire situation. Okay. So uh, we have that new target, this so-called ratcheting up of 2020, which brings me to the elephant in the room, which is, of course, the United States, President Trump's Rose Garden withdrawal last week from the Paris Accord for the United States. And he attacked the Paris Agreement on a number of grounds, but under the big umbrella of it being unfair to the United States. The question is, you know, what's the impact of the Trump administration's withdrawal? So the Trump administration's withdrawal is, in my view, a speed bump on the transition to a low carbon future, but not a brick wall. Um, and the reasons are, are multiple. You know, Paris, this bottom-up logic in the Paris Agreement is designed precisely to weather these kinds of political shocks. You know, if you're in a world of a Kyoto-style world where you're only acting because you have some sort of guarantee through an international treaty that others are acting too, and if someone big drops out like the United States, why would you follow through? But if you're instead in Paris world where your action, your pledge is nationally determined, it's something that you put forward yourself, um, it may not be conditional on the actions of others. And indeed, what we've seen since Trump's announcement is every big emitter in the world even places like Saudi Arabia and Russia say they intend to follow through on their pledges and deliver the Paris Agreement. And we see actually new agreement by some countries, such as France, to actually increase their ambition to help compensate for the lack of excitement from the U.S. federal government. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Trump's attack in the Rose Garden was of several sorts. He said the agreement was unfair to the United States, that it imposed obligations on the U.S., that were not imposed, and in particular, he pointed to uh, China. He even argued and used an analysis from MIT in which he said, even if everybody came through and met their NDCs, he expressively stated that it would change the temperature very, very, very little. Uh, What do you make of these series of arguments from the U.S. administration? Yeah, I think the the general point here is that the reasons um, Trump gave in the Rose Garden speech are universally spurious and misrepresent the facts. And the reason why is because the Trump administration didn't leave this agreement because it actually disagreed with the fundamentals on on the merits. It left the agreement because it 
um, was a selfish calculation based on appealing to its sort of hardcore base. And so it's not, the reasons given are, are if you want, political reasons, not real reasons. And it's easy to see that if you just go through the list. Um, so does the agreement impose something unfair on the United States? Well, as we just said, um, the United States is able to make its own determination of what its pledge should be. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to see how it, anything is imposed on, on the country through that mechanism. Um, does it achieve very little? Well, this MIT study that Trump cited explicitly models the effect of the Paris Agreement, assuming that there's no change in technology over the next 40 years. And I think if you look back 40 years, you'll, you, it doesn't take much, uh, much effort to, to realize that was a pretty, um, that's a pretty implausible assumption. Mm-hmm. So please cherry pick the study that happens to make a strong assumption um, and mis- misrepresent it for an assessment of the agreement as a whole. So, you know, the the reasons for this were political. They were driven by anti-globalist wing, as they would call themselves, at the White House. Um, They were done because Trump in some ways needed to follow through on one thing he could control, unlike health care or immigration or tax reform. Trump can make a decision on this without consulting Congress. And so, you know, it's one thing he could do to point to his base, show them that he was delivering on what he said. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we shouldn't misinterpret it as anything more than that. Okay. Let me ask you uh, two final pieces related to the decision. One, he argued that the United States had had assumed obligations, that there were no obligations on China of the sort that the United States had had taken on. What do we make of that particular argument? So it's true that the nature of the obligations that the United States set for itself and that China set for itself were different. That was the whole point of Paris, is allowing countries to make different kinds of pledges. Um, So if Mr. Trump was unsatisfied with China's pledge, he could have easily adjusted the U.S. pledge to better reflect what he thought was the correct path for the United States. Um, So, you know, China's, the nature of China's pledge was to peak its emissions by a certain time, not to reach an absolute reduction. And, uh, you know, that is a more sensible kind of pledge or a higher ambition pledge for a country that's growing very quickly or the, you know, it's on the sharp growth growth path. And the thing we need to do is get it off that growth path. The United States is on the downward side of that curve. We've been reducing emissions for a number of years now. And so the question is how much further down that path we're going to get to. So it's a, it's a comparing apples and oranges in some ways. Okay. Let me ask you one other feature. And you've described what you see the American withdrawal as what you call a speed bump. But let's examine this question of financial transfer, because it seems that the issue of the financial transfer to the Green Fund or through uh, national initiatives was a key feature in bringing on board the developing countries. And it would appear that President Trump in the withdrawal also indicated that the United States was no longer going to provide any financial support for, you know, transitions for developing countries. What do you believe to be the impact of that particular decision by the United States? I think it's an abdication of uh, both political leadership and moral responsibility for the United States to turn its back on the poorest of the poor countries, places that are already feeling the harsh effects of climate change. I was just having lunch with a colleague from Vietnam who is visiting somewhere uh, in the southern part of that country recently and said, uh, the village had a sort of pole, which was sort of about two kilometers out to sea. And they said that even a few years ago, you could actually walk to that pole 
at low tide, and now you can't, it, you know, it's now it's far offshore. Mm. So there are places in the world that are are suffering here and now because of climate change, um, and to turn away from them is is really just callous. Um, of course, it's not limited to climate change. This is the stance of the Trump administration across all areas of development aid, um, across all UN-related funding. So it's not specific to the climate issue, but it's particularly harmful to efforts to negotiate on a multilateral setting. And so I expect that the, that part of the negotiations around financial transfers, around the issue of so-called loss and damage, will become much more difficult given Trump's stance. Okay. So the question is, Tom, kind of to wrap it up and put a bow around it, what do we look to next in terms, you know, we've got the American withdrawal, okay, we've accepted that for the moment. Uh, what do we look to next in terms of climate change policy and the regime to limit carbon emission? Well, like I said before, I think it's a speed bump. And the reason I say that is because of all of the action we're seeing going forward. So if you look in the United States, about half of the country's emissions are covered by a city level or state level uh, emissions target of some kind. And in the wake of, of Trump's decision, we've seen this new coalition emerge, um, spearheaded by Bloomberg and others, that says we, states, cities, businesses, individuals, universities, etc., we're going to deliver the U.S. pledge regardless of what happens in Washington. Now, we're now in the phase of kind of crunching the numbers and seeing exactly what needs to be done to, to get there. But um, that's the level of ambition we're seeing rise up. Mm -hmm. um, the other feature of Paris, which I think is interesting going forward, is that Trump has announced his intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, but he hasn't actually done the paperwork. And that matters because you can't actually withdraw from the Paris Agreement for four years. So even if he gets his paperwork done on time, the actual date on which the United States will leave the Paris Agreement would be November 4th, 2020. Now, when is Trump up for re-election? November 3rd, 2020. So the Paris Agreement was designed for exactly this contingency, and it makes it clear that the choice of whether the United States stays in or out doesn't ultimately depend on Mr. Trump. It ultimately depends on the Americans who vote on November 3rd, 2020. So um, that's making climate change a salient issue in the, in the presidential election, and that's not going to help Trump uh, win in states he needs to win. So there's some silver linings, um, and maybe even a counterintuitive one where the kind of vicious way in which the United States announces withdrawal will promote a backlash both at home and abroad that will reinforce support for Paris going forward. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for taking us through uh, the Paris Accord and also current U.S. policy with respect to it. It's been a, a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.